produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Welcome to Kind World. I'm Yasmin Amr. And I'm Andrea Aswahe. Right now, there are tens of thousands of people waiting at the southern border. They're waiting for a chance to make their case to an American immigration judge, why they fled their home countries, and why they need to seek safety and rebuild their lives in the U.S. That opportunity, just to be heard, can take months. And that wait for the hundreds of people we met at the migrant encampment in Matamoros, Mexico, is extremely difficult. For their children, it's even worse. Right as you cross the bridge from Brownsville, Texas, into Matamoros, Mexico, you'll see a sea of tents sitting on an otherwise empty concrete lot. Over the last year, this plaza has become the only home to a growing number of stranded migrants. And for the last two months, it's also been the unlikely site of a classroom. On a small strip of sidewalk underneath the searing sun, there's a row of about 30 kids trying their best to pay attention to the woman in front of them, despite all of the noisy distractions around them. The woman, an American volunteer teacher, paces back and forth while reading from a picture book. She translates some of the words into English. Then, a man comes out with his guitar and starts singing songs in Spanish and English and invites the kids to sing along with him. A few yards away, around 30 more kids are sitting under the shade of a large tree. They're busy coloring and decorating paper plates with fuzzy pipe cleaners and glitter. I love the art. It's always fun to watch, watching them and seeing them laugh. That's 43-year-old Felicia Rangel Samponaro, a stay-at-home mother and former elementary school teacher from Texas. A year ago, Felicia started crossing the border with Team Brownsville, a local network of volunteers who bring critical relief supplies, like food, water, and clothing, to the migrant encampment twice a day, seven days a week. At first, the group was providing meals to maybe 30 to 40 asylum seekers. But now, the number has ballooned to almost 1,000. Last year, the kids would come and go frequently. So now, uh, with the new laws and policies, we're seeing the same kids over and over again, and no one's leaving anymore. Felicia is talking about the so-called stay-in-Mexico policy that the Trump administration rolled out early this year, where asylum seekers can't wait in the U.S. for their court dates anymore. They have to wait in Mexico. That, along with an ongoing list of new restrictive immigration policies, have made getting into the U.S. under asylum extraordinarily difficult. Still, a lot of parents wait, and their children wait with them. For a long time, they were tearing up whatever was available, tearing stuff apart, throwing things around because they had nothing else out here to do. So the idea of school, especially with kids that you're going to see over a long period of time, just made sense. So Team Brownsville volunteers decided to set up this makeshift school with reading, math, and art lessons on Sundays for the kids, most of whom are younger than 10 years old. 
But Felicia, a passionate advocate, wanted to do something a little different. So she created the Sidewalk School. The teachers are the asylum seekers. The teacher, all the teachers at that school are asylum seekers, every teacher. Felicia teamed up with asylum seekers who have advanced degrees so they could not only teach the children, but they would be in charge of what they would teach. They live here. This is their community. I don't think uh, as an American I can come in and tell you this is what needs to happen, this is what needs to go on, and then I cross back over and go home. How would I know what you need? Ray Pena, a Cuban asylum seeker and a former college English professor in Havana, is one of the teachers at the Sidewalk School. He's been living in Matamoros for four months after he was forced to leave his life behind. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, gay, I'm, and uh, it became really hard for me to be openly gay back home. have some instances with the police. I was threatened, I was threatened to be beating and all that, and it just, it just became impossible to actually have a normal life. Ray has been able to work locally teaching English, but his Sundays are dedicated to the sidewalk school. It's a way to get involved in the community anyway and give back because they do a lot for us. And so we can teach the kids. I mean, it's the least we can do. He says it's been good for him to give back too. It's a welcome distraction from the constant thoughts about his own uncertainty and whether he'll be able to start over. And it just plays with your mind because you're just thinking of what's going on. Why did you do this? What, okay, so what's going to happen? So it's, it actually is quite overwhelming to be honest at times. As the art class begins to wrap up, an excited four-year-old named Emmanuel runs up to his mother, 40-year-old Francisca Castro. His face is covered in glitter. Francisca says the weekly Sunday classes give her a moment of peace because they help bring a sense of normalcy to the camp, a calm moment in an often tense environment. We can relax because think about the times when the school isn't happening. Sometimes we sit there thinking negative thoughts, but during the classes, we can relax with our children and set aside our problems. Education is one of the reasons Francisca felt like she needed to leave Honduras. She's been unable to find work, and she can't afford to send her kids to the local schools. My young daughter who's with me, I couldn't send her to school because we had to pay the teacher each month. What about poor people? We come from a town where there are tons of kids who don't go to school, and no one wonders why. If they don't have money, they don't go. Francisca's nine-year-old daughter, Angeli, shyly appears next to her mother after finishing her lessons. She tells her mother that today, she learned the names of animals in English. Angeli says she loves to learn and wishes she could have class more often than a couple hours a week. And she's already thinking about what she wants to be when she grows up. Maestra. Maestra de matemática. She wants to be a math teacher. Felicia's received a few donations since she started the school. But most of their funding comes from her own pocket. It's not just for school supplies either. Felicia comes here nearly every day to give out supplies, take people to the local clinic, buy medicine, essentials these migrants would otherwise go without. As Felicia starts to wrap up her school day, a mother approaches her, worried about her daughter, whose hair is falling out. I will take you to the doctor and I will pay for your medicine. Felicia says being a mom to an eight-year-old boy inspires her to keep going back to Matamoros. It's upsetting to see 
parents who want better for their children, who sacrifice so much just to get to this point, to try to cross over, and then to be told they're stuck here. I have my own son. So I would want someone to try to help him educational-wise or however else they could. Since we met Felicia last month, she actually moved to Matamoros, to a small apartment she shares with five of the sidewalk school teachers. She doesn't know how long she'll stay there, but she says helping asylum seekers has become her calling. My hope is that we're not going to be out here for another year or two. It's really hard. And I don't think people realize. Like, these are humans, too. As we leave, we see some children playing in the limited open space in the encampment. Others are tired and resting from the sweltering heat. There's not much else to do at the camp, and they'll have to wait for their next lesson and their next break from a long, arduous, and uncertain wait. We'll be back with more Kind World after the break. Welcome back to Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahi. And I'm Yasmin Amr. In the last story, you heard from a Honduran immigrant named Francisca, who's trying to enter the U.S. with her school-aged children. She wants them to get an education and be able to work and escape the poverty that she grew up with. And that's a decision 32-year-old Jose Luis Zelaya understands. He's an educational consultant who lives in Houston, and he's also from Honduras. Jose currently lives under DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Basically, that means he's undocumented, but he's allowed to stay in the States and to work, for now. The Trump administration has actually tried to end DACA, and now the Supreme Court is expected to rule on it this next session. Exactly. So we don't know what's going to happen to the immigration status of Jose and around 700,000 people in that same situation. Yes, but... Back to Jose's story about how he got here and what it was like for him growing up in San Pedro Sula, a city in northwest Honduras, infamous for being one of the most dangerous cities in the world. From a young age, Jose always knew he loved to learn, but he says his childhood in Honduras didn't give him much opportunity. He spoke to us via Skype. I recall a very beautiful country, but I also recall a lot of poverty. I mean, whenever I was five years old, I witnessed the death of my brother due to poverty. He passed away due to an asthma attack because we couldn't take him to a hospital. In fact, I grew up in a trash field in Honduras. I'm talking about miles and miles of trash. I remember since a very young kid having to work and work since the the age of five, six, seven I remember walking to the plazas and to stadiums and to parks to to go shine shoes and to go sell gums and candies. You 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 start losing the concept of going to school because of the sacrifices that it takes to get there. Having to wake up early. So if school started at seven in the morning, you gotta wake up at four in the morning, take a two-hour bus ride, and then show up to a school where educators 
uh, might not be there or where people might be protesting because uh, they want the school to pay educators. And so so for me, it was just the normal thing to do, to, to keep on working, to want to provide for my family. And of course, growing up in a trash field uh, makes that necessity of providing uh, a must. So in the year 1998, Hurricane Mitch uh, caused extreme devastation to the country to the point that the trash fields inundated with water. They, they, they were flooded. And, and that caused m- many deaths, caused people to escape and to look for, not even for the concept of a better life, but for the concept of life itself. And among those people who migrated uh, was my mother. But during that time, my mother didn't have enough resources to escape the country with my sister and I. So my mother migrated to the United States with my younger sister in year 1999 after the hurricane had occurred. And during that time, I stayed in Honduras. I I remember being about one in the morning whenever I went to go drop her off at this bus that would then take her to Guatemala. It's like your heart is full of pain, but at the same time, you believe in what you're doing because it was better for my mother to save my sister than for all of us to perish. I don't recall exactly the last words we said, but I do remember crying because I knew that I wasn't gonna see them for a long time. Jose was only 11 at the time when his mother and younger sister left. He was living on the streets, sleeping in parks, without any family, for two years. One day, he was playing a game of soccer with other kids on the street, and there was a drive-by shooting. Jose was shot in both arms and had to go to the hospital, and he also made a very important decision as a 13-year-old kid. I realized I needed to, to escape or to hide or to find some type of refuge. And it was then whenever I made the decision to escape and to migrate to the United States as an unaccompanied minor to find my mother. Like, I didn't think I was breaking any type of borders line or, or that I was breaking any type of law. And, and I remember going to the same bus terminal that my mom had um, taken years before and taking a similar bus to Guatemala. And I remember going to Guatemala and walking around the city, walking around, um, begging people for money so that I can go to the United States to look for my mom. And I remember there were times that I slept in mountains because I didn't have a place where to go. There were times that I ran out of water in the desert and didn't know um, where I would be next. I recall having to to escape many people who were trying to kidnap or many people who were trying to um, to hurt or to uh, or to or to do bad things to you because at the end of the day I was still a child. And after 45 days of going through Guatemala and walking through Mexico and riding the train, I made it to the Rio Grande. And and when I saw the river, uh, to tell you the truth. I saw my mom on the other side, symbolically. I knew that if I swam across, that I was gonna see my mom. But who I actually found was immigration. Uh, An immigration officer came, and he was a man in an all green uniform. And I I was treated with grace. I was treated treated as a refugee. Uh, This man gave me his hand and he picked me up and he asked me if I was with anybody else. He asked me where I was going. 
He saw me crying. He saw me with wounds in my arms. He saw me with my foot bleeding. He saw me with, 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 with the pain that I had endured. And I remember whenever I went inside that patrol car, that was the first time that I can remember ever experiencing the feeling of air conditioning. To me, it was just like wow, because after after going through the desert, after walking after walking so long after the river, all of a sudden there was this fresh air in my face. Like, like it was it was different to me. It was different. Jose was taken to a detention center in Nos Fresnos, Texas, where there were about 20 other children at the time. That's where he spent the next two months, and where a social worker tried to help him find his mother. Then, one day, an immigration officer told him he needed to go to a different processing center 15 minutes away in Harlingen. He stepped out of the car, walked in, and was completely taken aback. And it was my mom. Like, my mom was in there. Like, I still recall she was wearing a red dress. Her hair was tied. And and I remember just running, running towards her. And when I hugged her, it was like an electrifying feeling. It's indescribable, but it was like the pain was gone. She said, Te dije que nos íbamos a volver a ver. I told you we would see each other again. Jose, his mother, and his younger sister took a bus to Houston, where they rented a small apartment with 14 other people. They slept on a mattress in a corner. Jose's mother told him that here, he had one job, go to school. He still thinks about the first time he walked into the school building. I was amazed. I was just in love with what I was seeing. The locker rooms and the gym and the classrooms and the air conditioning and the breakfast and the teachers and everything was just wow. And, and at that school, I met Mrs. Wright, who was my seventh grade middle school teacher. And, and she planted a seed in my life that... Uh, that flourished into who I become now. She would open up the school on Saturdays to teach me how to how to navigate a keyboard. She would teach me one-on-one. She would never allow me to fall behind. She always called my mom. She always made sure that I was that I was involved and aware of the things that I needed to do to, to be successful. And she told me that I was college material. And I didn't understand what college meant. And I did not understand what material meant. But she always kept saying that. And because of that, I decided to join the field of education. Jose then graduated from high school. Then he got his associate's degree. And as of a couple months ago, he is now a Ph.D. in urban education from Texas A&M. I want people to know that education is not only about an individual sense of achievement. It's not just about making making more resources or becoming successful in a business model, but it's about creating a generational impact. I am a few days away from becoming a father and my daughter is almost with me. And to know that the same kid who grew up in a trash field now has the opportunity to provide a different lifestyle for for my wife and for my daughter, that's that's something that education did that. The great equalizer came into my life and changed me and it transformed me and it served to, to my brain as, as therapy and, and it inspired me to know that that education can not only transform me, but it can transform my family, my community. Jose now has big plans for the future. 
and not just his. He wants to help better the future of both communities that he's been able to call home. Maybe a decade from now, uh, I seek to return to the same trash fields where I grew up and to clean them up and turn them into schools. I, I aspire to one day work and serve in the Secretary of Education for the country because I feel that life did not give me the experiences that I went through for in vain, but instead to be able to make a national impact in the same land that allowed me to be born in, as well as express my gratitude and my joy and always thanksgiving to this beautiful nation that gave me the grace, that treated me like a refugee and gave me the opportunity to pursue higher education. That was Jose Luis Celaya, now Dr. Jose Luis Celaya, sharing his story with us. And good news, since we last spoke to him a week ago, he and his soon-to-be wife, Catherine, just had a baby girl. And all three of them are doing very well. Huge congrats to them. Absolutely. Remember, this episode is one of three in our series, Lifelines, Stories of Compassion from the Southern Border. Make sure to go back and listen to the first episode. Next week we talked to a woman who fled her country after an attack and is now helping refugees overcome trauma. It was because I saw what I went through. I saw what was going on with me uh, personally in my life. I didn't want to see someone going through that. Kind World is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station. Paul Vikas and Matt Reed do our sound design. Special thanks to Maria Garcia for helping us with this episode. Additional production assistance from Gabriela Murzowski. And Iris Adler is our executive producer. I'm reporter and producer Yasmin Amr. And I'm reporter and producer Andrea Aswahe. If you have a story of kindness you want to tell us, email us at kindworld@wbur.org, or find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WBURKindWorld. And if you like what we do, then please help us out by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review. That really helps. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week.